Welcome to the Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. John O'Leary is the number one national best-selling author of the book On Fire. He's a world-class inspirational speaker, and he's the host of the Live Inspired Podcast. John interviews extraordinary individuals on their life story so that you can wake up from accidental living and more fully live your life story. Here's your host, John O'Leary. Well, hello, my friends. I am John O'Leary, and I am so delighted to have you here today joining me on the Live Inspired podcast and part of the Live Inspired movement. On every podcast episode, I have amazing guests joining me to share their story, their successes, their failures, their lessons, their life. You will absolutely hear some profound and unforgettably inspiring stories, but more importantly, you will take away real ideas to apply in your own life. My goal is to have guests on this show that will inspire you to choose to wake up from accidental living so that you can do, be, achieve, and impact even more through your own life. Or maybe more simply said, so that you can live inspired. I was introduced to today's guest earlier this year when she actually interviewed me for a column in the New York Times of Germany. She wanted to share about my book on fire because in her writing and in her research, she focuses on the topics of post-traumatic growth, not stress, post-traumatic growth. I was enamored with her and with this topic that I got a copy actually of her book, Bouncing Forward. And guess what? I loved it. It was awesome. Through the pages of her book, I met some new favorite amazing heroes, some people that I'd never even heard of before that were living examples of what it means to live inspired. Our guest, the author of that book, Michaela Haas, will give you so much to think about today. Most importantly is this, no matter what you are currently going through, her research shows that you, yes, you will get through it and likely, here's the awesome part, be even better because of it. You'll have to work for it. You'll have to reach out, you'll have to speak out, you'll have to make space to confront it, but you will become even better because of it. The science of post-traumatic growth is not to say, get over it already, or it's going to be fine, because that's some of the phrases people use when someone is going through hardship that drive people crazy. What the science of post-traumatic growth is looking at is, what are the factors that really help people make it through a really tough experience? Today, you are going to hear some amazing stories about the post-traumatic growth of others, from Maya Angelou to the woman who started Mothers Against Drunk Driving, and even a cameo from Michaela's beloved dog, Ruff Ruff. You'll hear the dog barking in the background. Trust me, it's not a bark or an episode that you want to miss. So my friends, it is an honor to introduce you to German-born, best-selling author, teacher of meditation and resilience, fellow sojourner, and wise sage, Michaela Haas. Today, she'll show each of us a beautiful example of how to live inspired. Michaela Haas, welcome to Live Inspired with John O'Leary. Thanks for having me. Michaela, you were born in Germany. You got this beautiful accent still that I love. You've traveled the world. You spend the majority of your time with us in the U.S. today. Tell us what life is like for you right now. Well, right now I'm actually looking at the ocean, and (laughs) we're burning up here in California, quite literally uh, a lot of fire danger going on, which I know Mm -hmm. you care about a lot. 
But right now it's beautiful, and I live in a place where I see dolphins every day, and this connection with nature gives me a lot of joy. Mm. You write in your best-selling book, and really one of the finest books on this topic I've ever come across, Bouncing Forward, that researching life stories has a goal. And I'm quoting Michaela Haas right here. To find out what protects us and those around us from unnecessary suffering, to discover strategies to intervene when life's trajectories go ballistic, and to help the healing. Then you add, Michaela, and not only to heal, but to use the crisis as a launching pad for a new beginning. Woo! I love it. But what was it in your own personal life experiences that drew you into this kind of work, this kind of research, this kind of writing? Well, thank you for your kind words about bouncing forward. And this is how you and I connected, because I interviewed you first, because I was so inspired by On Fire. And I very much connected with your words when you said, well, of course, you wish it mm. didn't happen, but actually a lot of the gifts in your life are due to the fire mm-hmm. and the accident that happened. And personally, as a journalist, I've been a journalist for 25 years now, and I often meet people who have been through tragedies. And I, this question, why do some people emerge from these tragedies stronger and wiser and more compassionate has fascinated me all my life. And then when I was in my 20s, I myself got very ill. And you mentioned I've traveled all over. I lived in Asia for a few years studying meditation and Buddhism. And while I was in Nepal, I came down with a very serious virus um, that almost killed me. Mm -hmm. And so I went back to Europe thinking that medical care in the West would build me back up. And it didn't. They didn't really know what I had at first and why I was so weak. I could barely eat anything anymore. And for almost a year, I was bedridden. And I had thought of myself as a strong person before this happened, traveling the world by myself, having a successful career as a journalist and TV host. Post. And when this happened, I was just desperate, and I wasn't strong at all. And on top of being ill, I was beating myself up for being weak and being desperate and crying and not seeing a way out. And so I really, really wanted to. I started this research of post-traumatic growth for my own sake to find out, well, how do other people do it? Yes. How do other people go through pain, physical pain and emotional pain, and not fall apart, or if you fall apart, how do you put yourself back together? Others have been through illnesses and experiences much worse than what I went through, so there must be a way. And that was the foundation of Bouncing Forward, to look at, well, how did you do it? What, what helped you? Can I learn from you? Mm-hmm. Is there, I, I say in the book, is there a resilience code? Can, yes. I, can I learn it? And I think there is something like a resilience code. I think there is something to learn from people like yourself who have gone through severe suffering and see what helped you and how you made it through and how what helped your healing. You know, Michaela, I have the honor of four times a year spending some time with the wounded warriors. So these are men and women yeah. who come back from war devastated physically and certainly emotionally from the injuries they sustained and endured on the battlefield. Uh, 
not only physically, but also things they were part of or people, friends they had lost along the way. Yeah. All of them have PTSD. And it's a term that we're hearing more and more and more frequently. And yet you just shared a term that I had never heard before. And I would imagine many of our listeners may not be all that familiar with post-traumatic growth. Post-traumatic growth. Explain to us what that is. This is exactly why I wrote Bouncing Forward, because everybody has heard of post-traumatic stress or PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. And there is a comparatively new science about post-traumatic growth. And it might seem weird at first or absurd to put the term growth and trauma in one sentence. But when you look at it, it isn't, because there are more people who experience post-traumatic growth than post-traumatic stress disorder. Or sometimes, very often, actually, it even happens simultaneously. So what post-traumatic growth is, is it refers to the knowledge, the wisdom, the strength, the benefit we can derive from a traumatic experience. And let me say up front, this does not at all mean to imply that trauma is something good, that the trauma itself uh, is something positive. Not at all. We all wish, I think, we would have learned our lessons through some less brutal ways. But the scientists, the psychologists who coined this term post-traumatic growth at the University of Charlotte in North Carolina, they had been counseling trauma survivors for decades, and they were surprised to hear again and again people telling them, I wish this didn't happen to me, but it did, and I've learned something valuable I wouldn't have learned without it. And so they came up with five areas where they've seen the most post-traumatic growth. That's personal strengths, deeper relationships with others. You kind of find out Mm -hmm. who your true friends are, new perspectives on life, a deeper appreciation of life, and a deeper spirituality. And when I read your book, John, I thought that you were a really inspiring example of post-traumatic growth. And I think, though many people might not have heard the term, but you might have lived it without knowing the term. And whenever I speak about it, you know, actually Jesus' story is a story of post-traumatic growth. The Bible is full of post-traumatic growth. Buddha's life is an example of post-traumatic growth. So the science is new, but actually the experience that when a traumatic event happens to us, that we can use it to grow our compassion and strength, that's not new. That's been in, you know, that's been written in the, in the old book, The yes. Wisdom Forever. And I've had the honor of traveling the world, sharing parts of my story. And when we do leadership events, I'll frequently ask the question, hey, John's got his story. John got burned as a kid. Okay, that's his story. But what's yours? What's one challenging event? What's one traumatic event that you've endured? And in asking this question many multiple thousands of times, I've never had anyone hold a pen in their hand blankly. Like staring yeah. at the question, wondering, well, geez, I'm waiting for the, that shoe to drop. Because the reality is we have all endured trauma, loss, challenges, adversity. And yet what your research shows, Michaela, is that from that challenge, from that trauma, most of us, 90%, according to many studies, experience growth on the backside. Your book ultimately unpacks the stories of individuals 
who are proof of this. Yes, and, I, and also it's, it's important to say that traumatic events don't only happen to soldiers. That's what we think no. of. You know, when you think of PTSD, you think of the wounded warriors and, and the brave soldiers who, who fought for us in Afghanistan and Iraq and, and all these places, or Vietnam. But actually, every one of us goes on average, through five to six traumatic events in our lifetime. So it's really almost everybody who goes through at least one or more traumas. So trauma can be, and the way uh, Richard Tedeschi and Lawrence Calhoun, the two psychologists who coined this term post-traumatic growth, the way they define trauma is not necessarily that it has to be a life-threatening situation. Mm-hmm. A trauma can be something that pulls the rug out from under you. It could be a divorce. It could be a surgery. It could be a car crash. Whatever our mind cannot process, whatever brings our world, a real earthquake that shatters our world. So I've spoken to Vietnam veterans who came back from Vietnam, and they said, well, Vietnam was a traumatic experience, but coming home and finding out that my wife betrayed me was actually more traumatic mm-hmm. for me personally. And I hear that again and again. So I think we make the mistake of thinking trauma is something that happens to other people, whereas in reality, we all experience it. And, and it's our job, I think, to be able to listen to other people, share their story and connect with other people and not be afraid when the going gets tough to be there for them. Well, uh, and you've had some incredible role models in your life, men and women you've interviewed, and uh, even dear family members. And, uh, and bouncing forward, you guide us through various examples. I'd, I'd like to begin, though, with one probably nearest and dearest to your heart, I would imagine, your grandfather. D- yeah. T- t- tell the Live Inspired community about your grandfather. My grandfather and my grandma lived with us in our house. I grew up with them. And... If you looked at my grandfather from the outside, you could call him severely handicapped. He, half of his body was paralyzed because he suffered from polio when he was just a little boy. But I didn't realize that. Growing up together, it was only after I became a young adult that all of a sudden I thought, oh, my grandfather is paralyzed mm-hmm. because he was such a lively, um, vivid person He was always there for me. We had so much fun together. He was so active. And I think it's a label we put on people sometimes to call them handicapped, when in reality, he lived his life to the fullest. And then I became more interested in his story. And I learned that, you know, when he became, when he got polio, there were no modern, there was no modern medicine. And so he actually crawled. He could not walk. He crawled until he was seven years old. And that struck me deeply to think his friends were running around yes. and playing soccer and he had to crawl. How humili- humiliating is that? And then, of course, he was a young man in World War II in Nazi Germany uh, who treated handicapped people yes. like garbage, uh, who, you know, his life was in danger. And yet he, he found a wife, he had five beautiful children, including my father, 
and he never let life bring him down. And to me, my grandfather is my first role model in how to live with difficulties and how to keep your dignity and your spirit when the world around you is trying to get you down. Well, I find it so ironic, but frequently we view our, our handicaps, our challenges, our, our traumas, whatever that is for each one of us. And we only see through one lens. And if your grandfather had seen it only through that lens, he would have been a victim to it for the rest of his life. The yeah. alternative lens is the reason he survived World War II in all likelihood is because of that handicap. I, I, the vast majority of German men, healthy, good-looking fellows who ran off to war, never returned. And for those who came back physically, they never fully came back fully emotionally. Yeah. And yet here's your grandfather, a tailor a husband, a father, and a vibrant man, alive and well, because of the handicapped. Yes, you could say that. Because sometimes we look at such an illness as polio and the consequences uh, as a disaster. But in his case, it might have saved his life because he wasn't drafted into the war. And there are a lot of examples like that. And I always encourage people to look at what's the benefit what is there a positive side you mm-hmm. can find in what happened to you? And that's a very provocative question, especially when the trauma is new. If someone yes. had asked you, well, is there a benefit you see in having gone through that fire? If I had asked you in the few years after it happened, right. you would probably uh, The hospital food me, rocks. Get that would have been door. about my only answer. Milkshakes <laughs> at every meal would have been the, the only good thing to come out of the fire in days in the early days. So the science of post-traumatic growth is not to say get over it already or it's going to be fine because that's some of the phrases people right. use when someone is going through hardship that drive people crazy. Uh, what the science of post-traumatic growth is looking at is what are the factors that really help people make it through a really tough experience? Mm. You uh, you cite incredible examples, some that I had heard of, others I had not. One of the examples I've never heard of before and am amazed by is a fellow named Coco Schumann. Mm. T- tell the listeners who may not be as familiar with Coco as, as you are, of course, about Coco. Coco Schumann is one of the best jazz musicians, I would say, worldwide. He played with Marlene Dietrich, uh, Ella Fitzgerald, um, a lot of the greats, uh, the jazz greats. And for decades, nobody really knew what happened to him um, during the Holocaust. And it was only when he was already in his 60s that he started talking about that he was in Auschwitz. He survived Theresienstadt, Auschwitz, and Dachau, the concentration camps. And he survived by playing for his life. (laughs) It's a a little-known fact that even in Auschwitz and Theresienstadt, there were bands. And in Auschwitz, the camp commanders competed who had the best bands. And Coco actually had to play upbeat music while children and women and men were marching to the gas chambers. So he survived barely, and for about 40 years, he could not speak about what he had seen, what he had witnessed, what he had been through. And then he had an experience where he 
overheard young people talking about how the Holocaust never happened. And he stood up and he said, I know it happened. I was there. And then he started talking about his experience mm-hmm. and, and what he went through. And Coco, he's a dear friend. He's over 90 now. He's still alive. And he still plays. And Coco said, listen, I could have spent the rest of my life being devastated about what I saw in Auschwitz. Or I could have spent the, less, the rest of my life being happy that I survived and make the best of my life. And this is what he did. You you wrote about Coco getting off the train in Auschwitz. The German commander greeted him when he gets off and greeted everybody else being offloaded from these train loads of human beings getting off into Auschwitz. And the quote that you shared in the book was the gentleman said, this is the entrance to the extermination camp Auschwitz. Mm -hmm. Then he turned around, he pointed toward the fuming chimneys behind him, and then he added, and this is its exit. Yes. This is what Coco is greeted to. How, how does a man who is greeted with this, endures this, how does he play joyful music while he's watching friends and neighbors and fellow human beings walking off to the chimneys? How do, what is the rationale of his thinking even that allows him to endure this type of experience? I think one thing I've learned from really all of the people I spoke with who've gone through a severe trauma is, they had a passion, a passion, uh, a purpose that pulled them through. And for Coco, it was music. Um, and one of the things, I know we both love Viktor Frankl, who's mm-hmm. another Auschwitz survivor. And Viktor Frankl said, if you have a why to live, you can yes. endure almost any how. And Coco had a why. Music for him was more than just music. It was his existence. It was his purpose in life to give joy. Uh, He was an entertainer, or he is an entertainer, through and through. And that that was and is his purpose, to to spread joy. So he says himself, I don't know how I survived this. He says, I don't know how anybody can go on living after seeing what I saw. And the image is have been haunting him all his life. And he also, you know, for, for a while, he really, really struggled. He, he drank too much, yes. uh, and he admits he drank too much, which is a very, very common exit. We're, we're trying to, you know, we're trying to find something that numbs the pain. And um, uh, 75% of men who have been through a trauma uh, go for, for alcohol. It's, it's a very common um, coping mechanism that, of course, doesn't work. And it's counterproductive in in the in the long run, but that's what he did. He was struggling for for many many years, but I think what pulled him through is the music, which was his purpose, and also his family. He married another Holocaust survivor. He had very close family relations, mm-hmm. and um, that's something that I cannot stress enough: is that nobody can can do it alone. And he had the support of his parents, who miraculously survived of his wife, who understood what he was going through because she had shared a similar experience, and of his fans and the many, many people who love him. You, you mentioned there, Michaela, about numbing pain, and, and uh, alcohol is one way to do it, but you also mm-hmm. shared within the book some just jaw-dropping stats. I want to I share these with our followers. 80% of the world's supply of painkillers, 80%, are consumed by Americans. 
This includes more than 108 tons of the highly addictive drug Vicodin. So you ask the question, is it working? Is it working? Well, you answer it as well. In the past 15 years, overdose deaths from painkillers has quadrupled, surpassing now traffic accidents for the number one preventable form of death. Every day, 40 individuals in the United States die, thousands are raced to the emergency department, and tens of thousands of lives are turned upside down. So, Michaela, I'd like you to answer your own question again. How, how are we dealing with pain right now as a society? Yeah, in America, we're the world champions in taking painkillers. And, of course, there's a level of reasonable pain management. If you break your arm, you, you want to take uh, a painkiller. I understand that, and that might make sense. But the sheer amount of painkillers we take tells us that there's something else going on. And one, 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 one thing about painkillers is that you cannot numb the pain selectively. When you take painkillers, you also numb the joy. Mm -hmm. And that's one reason why they're not working, because is it really the physical pain we're trying to numb, or are we trying to numb something else? And one of the things I found most important and essential about post-traumatic growth is that every psychologist and every survivor told me they turned their life around when they stopped and started to look at what was really going on, what, was re what they were really feeling, getting in touch with the layers underneath. Because especially in America, when someone asks you, how are you, you're supposed to say, I'm great. How are you? Right. Oh, I'm great, too. That's our culture, to always be upbeat and optimistic. And that has a lot of advantages. But there also needs to be a place and a time to deal with our pain. My sister-in-law, who lost her mm -hmm. only daughter at three years old, she calls our society our hurry-up-and-get-over-it society. Because when you lose your child, you get three days of sick leave. And then you're supposed to go back to work and carry on as if you could carry on your life right. when you've just lost the love of your life, your only child. So I think that's an, a really important topic to talk about is are we making space in our own lives and with our friends and in our society for talking about what's going on, what's really going on. And one of the reasons I'm such a big fan of mindfulness meditation is that mindfulness meditation has been proven to actually be more effective than morphine in dealing with pain because mindfulness meditation teaches us to stay present, to watch what's going on, to watch the thoughts that are churning in our, in our mind, to get in touch with our real feelings. And we don't always, I mean, you are an extremely optimistic person, and I love that about you, John, but there are times when we have to allow ourselves to, to show that we're sad or we're in no, pain, no. and there has to be space to share that, too. And the mindfulness part, it, it's really a thread all the way through this book, but in mm -hmm. particular as we're discussing pain, and you, you, you talk eloquently in the book, bouncing, bouncing forward, about how to be present with the pain and how it actually redeems the pain. It makes sense on, and meaning out of a difficult situation. Explain to me what you mean by that. I think it's so natural when there is pain, whether it's physical pain or emotional pain, we just want to get away from it. 
and we, we, any strategy will do, whether it's drinking, whether it's painkillers, whether it's distracting ourselves, whether it's acting out, we just don't want to feel what we're feeling when it's really uncomfortable, mm-hmm. more than uncomfortable, right? Mm-hmm. So, but we are feeling it. So, in a way, mindfulness meditation gives us a tool to learn my meditation teacher calls it making our minds and hearts bigger and bigger and bigger so that we can hold more and more conflicting emotions, yes. the good and the bad. Um, he, he calls meditation like inviting all our feelings, all our emotions, all our thoughts, and giving them a very wide space, creating space around it. So rather than this immediate, I don't like how I'm feeling I want to kill that feeling. Mindfulness meditation is a great tool to learn to stay present with it. And this is really, staying present with it is really the only way, I would say, how we can learn from it. Because as long as we're running away from it, and I've tried it, I've tried to run away from my pain. I've spoken to many people, and many of the stories in the book, you know, people were at first trying to trying to run away and trying to drink the pain away or, or trying to um, use sex or whatever their their particular style is to, to mask the pain. And it never works. And at some point, there will be an experience or they hit rock bottom where they, where they realize the only way to grow out of it is we have to go through the pain. We cannot go around it. There is no shortcut. Whenever I talk about post-traumatic growth, people always say, what's the recipe? <laughs> right. What's the recipe? And, and how I quickly can I cook them, it? How quickly can you get there? I always tell them you cannot skip, skip the first step. And the first step is you have to allow yourself to struggle. And then... It's the struggle that's actually the engine for the post-traumatic growth. You, you provide a guide, and, and we're getting to the end before we go through the meat of it all, but you, you provide a guide near the end, and the very first step in the guide that you recommend is to meditate. We live in a rushed, hurried society. In the Western world, um, very few of us are exceptional at either praying or meditating. I, what would be your advice for those of us living ordinary lives but striving to be inspired in the way we go about each day to find and to make the time for meditation and, and guide us through an exercise that we can grab onto and start, and start practicing ourselves? I like to teach two mindfulness exercises, and one is to simply focus on the breath. And it does not have to take a long time. Um, they've done studies with Marines who came back from war and the study shows that you need 12 minutes. Do you have 12 minutes in your day to take for yourself? You need 12 minutes. Um, that's an amount of time that will make a difference. To just take that time in the morning, I like to do it in the morning or in the evening when you come home from work, to just sit down and take a moment with yourself and be present. And people often say, oh, I can't meditate. I have too many thoughts, mm-hmm. thinking that meditation means not thinking. That's not what it means. Meditation just means being present, being aware, um, focusing on your breath. And the second method I teach is loving kindness, because very, very often after trauma, the most common emotion is guilt and self-blame and uh, a feeling of right. not being worthy. And so loving-kindness meditation, just sending love and kindness 
to yourself and to others is a great way of making friends with yourself. Because as you know, um, the suicide rates, especially for veterans, are through the roof. And the very, you know, we often neglect the one that we're closest to, which is ourselves. Yes, of course. To make friends with ourselves, to not beat ourselves up for what we've been through or how badly we think we've handled it. To, to be kind to ourselves is so important. So this element of self-compassion and awareness together is what really makes a difference. And anybody can do it. You know, I went to the Army Resilience yes. Boot Camp, and I was flabbergasted to realize that every morning they start the day with a simple, mindful breathing exercise. So you don't have to become a Buddhist. You don't have to become a Hindu. It's a very secular, <laughs> basic, right. sane practice that has worked wonders for, for the Army. You know, in, in your book, Michaela, you interviewed Zen teachers and brigadier generals, and it, it runs the gamut. Surfers, drummers. It's a beautiful book, but I want to focus on two as we begin moving toward the finish line together. The, the second to last is a woman named Cindy Lamb, mm-hmm. uh, no longer mad, apparently. To share, share with us Cindy Lamb's story. So say, um, she's one of the co-founders of MAD, Mothers Against Drunk Driving. And she was hit by a drunk driver. Um, she, her, her daughter was an infant at the time, and her daughter was the youngest quadriplegic ever, mm-hmm. the, Doctors thought her daughter could not survive. So Cindy, um, her husband couldn't take it. He left her. So she was a single mom caring for a paralyzed infant. And she was mad as hell, (laughs) really mad with one D. And she hatched plans to actually kill that drunk driver who did all this to her. And it took her a long, long time, 30 years almost, to work through that anger and hatred. And one of her, one of the reasons she co-founded MAD, Mothers Against Drunk Driving, is because eventually her little girl passed away after seven years. And she wanted, she couldn't save her own daughter, but she wanted to prevent other children and adults from suffering the same fate. So by founding MAD, she actually they've changed the laws on drunk driving because, um, you know, it was treated as a cavalier uh, thing that, you know, almost cool to do to to drive drunk. And they've changed that. And that became her purpose and her passion. And eventually, through finding a church um, and her church community, she even found forgiveness for the drunk driver, realizing that he himself had had an extremely hard life, which wasn't an excuse for what he did, but she understood that what connected them was their shared suffering. When I, when I began reading that chapter, I assumed it would be how she redeemed what she went through, not only her own injuries, but her the loss of her daughter and her marriage. Yes. And what it really was, yes, she certainly did, and Matt has transformed uh, the view on drinking and driving, saving mm-hmm. thousands of lives, maybe yours, maybe mine, who knows? Yeah. But what it, the chapter became about, really, was forgiveness. Yes. Forgiving yourself and then forgiving someone else. It was a really powerful take on her story. Well, the interesting thing is, she said, I wanted to forgive. I realized that it's poisoning me, but I couldn't. I was just so angry. And, you know, we can all understand that, right? Mm-hmm. And after 
trying to forgive, she had this aha moment, like almost like meeting God. Uh, and she said, the moment I let go, the moment I was able to forgive, it was like tons of weight falling off my shoulders. Yes. He thought I was doing it for him when I finally met him and I said, I forgive you. But really, my life changed after that. And it, it seems even in the way you you wrote about her that it, it changed the way she viewed everything even trees you're you're driving with her in a car and she's like oh my lord look at the dogwood and she's (laughs) lit up for life Uh, she forgave and and then what that leads us to in the end is this example of love who you have uh given that title on to maya angelo yes for those who somehow may not have heard of the american great maya angelo share with us a little bit more about maya angelo So, bouncing forward, the title of my book is actually a quote from Maya Angelou. And, of course, she's one of our great civil rights icon, a great writer, um, a great poet. She's won all the awards uh, there are. And um, she was raped when she was eight years old, and she grew up in the extremely segregated South. She experienced a lot of violence, a lot of racism, poverty, um, her her parents were not there for her, and she needed them the most. So really, a life, a childhood um, marked by abuse and racism and violence. And for her, and she too, went through a phase of, of anger and despair. She actually didn't speak for five years after the rape. She became mute. And then to emerge from that with a message of love and with a message of forgiveness, to me, Maya Angelou's life is really like a course book in post-traumatic growth. And she learned from Martin Luther King, who, who was a good friend to her until his, his, his death. And she um, really spent the rest of her life advocating for love, for connection, for forgiveness, for um, speaking out against injustice. And... Um, she became really what, when she was little, books became her world. Yes. And I think her books, especially her, her first autobiography, um, I Know Why the Caged Bird Sings, where she talks yes. about the rape, this was unheard of at the time, that especially a black woman details that, that account of being raped as a girl. It was scandalous. It was banned for a while. But she had to speak her truth. And that's another thing that I think you cannot really overcome a trauma unless you speak your truth, unless you express your trauma and your pain and your truth to at least one other person. Because a lot of people think that if you're strong, you can do it by yourself and you don't let on how hard it hit you. But really that element of expressing your truth is crucial. And I have not yet met anybody who was able to heal without taking that courageous step of speaking out and talking about what's going on underneath. When you sum up your work, your research, your writing, and of course your book, Bouncing Forward, what's that main takeaway that you hope your audience will take home with them? The main takeaway is... um, I'd like to quote Maya Angelou, who said, nothing will work unless you do. Mm. So the main takeaway is don't give up. And that's easy to say and difficult to do when you're in the midst of it. But really, I wrote 
these life stories down because they show me that no matter what happens to us, we can go through it, but we have to work for it. It doesn't happen by itself. We have to reach out. We have to speak out. We have to seek help. We have to find ways of confronting our pain, of dealing with it. And then really anything is possible. I think if Coco Schumann didn't give up in Auschwitz and Maya Angelou didn't give up growing up without her parents in the segregated South, and Cindy Lamb didn't give up after she lost her daughter, and you didn't give up after you, were, you, you almost died in the hospital, that spirit, that spirit of not giving up and that growth mindset to believe that we can grow and we will grow if we work for it and if we keep at it. That's what I want people to take away from Bouncing Forward. Michaela Huss, that's certainly what I took away. I I cannot recommend the book enough. I thought it was outstanding, not only to be inspired by the stories of others, but to be inspired into specific action. So you did a beautiful job, and I want to begin wrapping up our conversation by asking you seven questions. We call them the Live Inspired Seven Every individual we've had the honor of interviewing on this show have been brought through these seven questions. So, Michaela Haas, uh, PhD, and my friend, I'd like to ask you these questions now. Go ahead. Here we go. Number one, what's the best book you've ever read? Oh, I want to say Why the Caged Bird Sings by Maya Angelou, maybe because I just talked about her and I met her and I was inspired by her. That's the first book that comes to mind right now. Uh, I read that years ago, and uh, it's an unforgettable classic. So, my friends, if you haven't ever picked up that book by Maya, I highly recommend it as well. Tomorrow, you discover that your wealthy uncle has shockingly died at 103 years of age, leaving you, Michaela, with millions, millions of dollars. What would you do? Well, first of all, I would mourn him, but I'm, I'm a rescuer. And I would donate most of the money to good causes that rescue people, suicide prevention, extremely important, trauma prevention, helping Mm -hmm. people with trauma, but also animals. I'm an animal lover, and few people know that we put down 8,000 cats and dogs in the U.S. every day. So I would use that money to save some of these lives. Perfect. Michaela, if your house apartment were to catch fire, all living things, all living animals, all living people are out. And you have an opportunity to run in safely and grab one item, just one. What would you grab? This is easy because, as I mentioned, my sister-in-law lost her three-year-old daughter. And we have a recording of her voice Mm. that says, you're my best friend. It's in a little cube with her picture. And... uh, you know, we have very few recordings of her, so I would definitely grab, grab that cube that says, you're my best friend. Awesome. If you could sit on a bench overlooking a gorgeous beach on a beautiful day and have a long conversation with anyone, living or dead, who would it be? Um, maybe the Buddha, because I'm a Buddhist. I've studied Buddhism and we really don't know what his true words were because nobody wrote them down during right. his lifetime. So <laughs> to have an opportunity to actually speak with him and find out what he really thinks <laughs> and thought, that would Hopefully be Hopefully you wonderful. won't be disappointed. 
All right, my friend. So just uh, three three questions remaining. What's the best advice that you've ever received? Let go. Mm. The best advice I've ever received was to let go. Let it go. And, of course, it's a mantra in all great religions. And certainly as a Buddhist, you would have heard it repeatedly there. Uh, as a Christian, it's it's central to uh, to my beliefs as well. Easily said and very hard to do, but when I get into the trenches and I hold on to some injustice or something or some loss, I yeah, I say that to myself. Yeah. Let go, let go, because there's no other choice anyway. Well, and to be honest, even the question around the fire in your house, what, what most people realize is, yes, you'd grab the cube with your three-year-old niece's voice, and really, besides that, you'd say, let it burn. And it's a simple exercise in realizing how little of what we have, and we all have so much, that how little of it we actually need. So let it go is great advice. What would you tell your 20-year-old self? I would tell my 20-year-old self to appreciate life. Because when I look back now, at 20, I had so many worries. And when I look back, I had it all. I was healthy. I uh, was following my dream to pursue a career in journalism. I was traveling the world. And I so wish that instead of having my mind filled with worry, I would just have enjoyed it and be more present for it and be more grateful and appreciate it while I was living it. And looking back, I think, oh, my God, my life was so great. Mm. Why didn't I? Why, what was I worrying about? <laughs> you know, I, I see a lot of people listening in their cars and buses, poolside, wherever else they may be listening right now to the Live Inspired podcast, nodding their heads. And I think the encouragement is if you could tell your 20-year-old self that maybe the next step is, how about telling yourself that today, right? Exactly. So the 20-year-old would benefit, but so would the 40-year-old and the 60-year-old and the 80-year-old. Right. Michaela, final, final question. It's been said that all great people can have their lives summed up in one sentence. How do you want your one sentence to read? Well, I have to think about that. (laughs) (laughs) What comes to mind is love, light, and she made a difference. Michaela Haas, love, light, and the woman certainly made a difference. She is a survivor. She's a sojourner. She's a researcher. She's an author. She's a sage. And she's my friend. Michaela Haas, we were fortunate to spend this time with you and are so grateful, not only for this time, but for the impact that your research and your writing is having on a global marketplace in need of it. Thank you so, so much, John. Nobody has called me a sage before. I take it. Thank you. Hey, if not, they've not read your book, Bouncing Forward. My friends, for this time and until next time, this is Live Inspired with John O'Leary, and this is your day. Live Inspired. Well, thank you for joining me today on the Live Inspired podcast. On the front side of the interview, I mentioned that Michaela would have some amazing insights on Living Inspired. And I'm confident now after hearing this episode, you completely agree. In our show notes, we'll have a link to Michaela's book, Bouncing Forward. You'll want to do yourself a favor and order a copy. It's a page turner. You're going to love it. I know for sure that I absolutely did. We will also have links to some of the fascinating guests that she talked about, including Coco Schumann, whose music you heard on the show today. And a link to order a copy of Michaela's favorite book by Maya Angelou. Why the Cage Bird Sings, in case you've not read it. I have. I read it years ago. It sticks with me. It's the kind of book you'll never forget and you'll always be better because of. 
If you enjoyed this episode as much as I enjoyed bringing it to you, please take a moment, just take a moment, to subscribe to the show and leave a review on iTunes. This means more to me than you know, as the more reviews and the more downloads we get for the show, the more people will find their way to the show who will join us in the Live Inspired movement. So help me out so that we can help others out. Don't forget, you can always find out more about our guest and about how to live inspired at my website, www.johnolearyinspires.com. johnolearyinspires.com. For this time and until next time, this is John O'Leary and this is your day. Live inspired. <laughs>